So Josh and I have been together for 24 hours a day for two weeks. And um, we've taken a vow, kind of a vow of silence. But uh, there's one thing that I do have to share with you. The other morning, Josh woke up, and uh, he kind of felt this presence. He thought, Dave is awful close to me. I think he's even in the same bed here with me. And he wanted to reach out, you know, and make sure and check that out, but he didn't. Then he kind of woke up a little bit more and realized it was Shelby and he was home. So uh, (laughs) when you see Josh the next time, make sure you rub that in. It really was an amazing trip uh, just to be in Israel, especially at this time of the year, and connected to our Lenten uh, theme. And it it looks exactly like this, by the way, our set here. Um, But it was just uh, absolutely incredible. And it will be a a trip that we will be kind of mining, you know what I mean? Kind of digging and and processing it as the years go by, I know. And I really couldn't have had a better traveling partner. It really was just a blessing to be with Josh and uh, spend that much time with each other. We really appreciated that. And I want to thank everybody. You know, I took on these new responsibilities uh, as uh, pastor of administration January 1st, and it's the end of February, and I took off for two weeks. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate uh, Tim and all those who filled in the gaps, and, and really that was much appreciated as well and covered for us while we were, while we were uh, traveling. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. God, we just ask for your presence and for your blessing during this time when we delve into your word, and we're con- we continue this journey to Jerusalem, Father. Uh, We thank you that your son made this journey, and uh, we, as a result, will be eternally grateful. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Today is the third week of our Lenten series, Journey to Jerusalem. And uh, you'll remember that two weeks ago, Pastor Tim told us about uh, the preparation relating to the action of Lazarus's sister Mary in extravagantly anointing his feet with that really expensive perfume in Bethany. And then uh, last week, Josh Hostetter told us about the arrival, uh, Jesus traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem and entering the city on Palm Sunday. And we were able to uh, be on the Mount of Olives. We were able to be in Bethany. And Bethany is, is really just a short distance from Jerusalem, about two miles. But you can't get there from here, in other words. You know, you, you, you can't just go like Jesus did from Jerusalem to Bethany because there's a wall there now, a Palestinian wall. And instead of a, of a half an hour walking trip, it has to be a half an hour trip by bus. And you have to go around through the city and, and travel in, in that way. Uh, Jesus, though, now had, had made it to Jerusalem. His arrival was occurring just about a, a little less than a week before Passover. And as Tim told you, he would travel back and forth on a day-to-day basis between Jerusalem and Bethany. We presume that he stayed overnight at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary in Bethany. Um, Bethany is, uh, is an interesting place. That you can go into the tomb of Lazarus, or what they say is the tomb of Lazarus. We were also told that if you go Uh, and visit anyone in Bethany that they will tell you that come into our basement, we have the tomb of Lazarus in our basement. So, you know, you don't really know 
which is which, but just to be in close proximity. Our guide repeatedly said, well, it might be 20 feet to the left or 20 feet to the right, but this is where it happened. You know, this week we move on now to uh, the 13th chapter in John, and it's a description of Jesus' last meal with his disciples in the upper room. Now, John in his gospel doesn't really mention too much of what happened from Palm Sunday, from Jesus' arrival, until Thursday night in the upper room. Uh, He doesn't have too much to say other than the Jews continued in their unbelief. And that's really all he really mentions about it. So to really set the stage for the upper room, it's necessary for us to examine some of the other Gospels. And if we look at Matthew or Mark or Luke, all three of them record the cleansing of the temple. And Mark even tells us that Jesus did that on Monday, the day after the triumphal entry. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the cleansing of the temple, only to say that the system for buying sacrificial animals, the system for exchanging your currency into the temple currency, because you had to have the right shekels in order to buy the sacrificial animals, that, those systems were completely corrupt. And people were being gouged. They were being overcharged to exchange their currency, and the animals were overpriced as well. And Jesus really called it for what it was, a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And so he goes into the temple, and he overturns the tables of the money changers. He releases some of the animals that are in cages being held there for uh, the the purchase for uh, animals of of sacrifice. And this certainly had an, an impact. It it angered the religious leaders. It especially angered the family of Annas. Uh, Annas' family was in charge traditionally of the money changing and also the buying and selling of the sacrificial animals. But we read also in the Gospels that Jesus didn't stop there. He wasn't content. I think sometimes we think that he overturned the tables of the money changers and and that was it. He continued to go back to the temple day after day and openly teach. And the chief priests and the elders came to him and they said, by what authority do you do this? They came and they they questioned him. And Matthew devotes quite a few chapters. If you have a chance sometime, read Matthew 21 through 24. It goes into a lot of detail about these interchanges between the religious leaders and Jesus these last couple of days before the, uh, the upper room. He condemns the chief priests, he condemns the Pharisees, he condemns the the scribes, and he condemns the Sadducees. He didn't leave anybody out. He actually made fun of them. He poked fun at them. He asked them questions that they either couldn't answer or they refused to answer. And they designed questions to ask him, to try to trick him. And he answered those questions effortlessly. F or Leslie. I couldn't say it during the first service either. (laughs) I should have changed the word, but I thought I had it down. (laughs) It got to the point, really, where the religious leaders stopped asking him questions. They just shut down. But Jesus didn't stop. And he continued to go on and deliver seven woes. And, boy, read that. I think it's in Matthew 24. Read those seven woes. And he just slams them. And it had its desired effect because it's, it's just like he was deliberately trying to anger them. And if he was, which I'm sure he was, he succeeded. Because it was at that point 
that the religious leaders met with the high priests and they made a plot to arrest him and to kill him. So it's very likely that by Thursday night, when Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room, they were in hiding, kind of, uh, you know, cautious about what was taking place. Now, the Passover would normally take place on a Friday night. That's the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath, and it was kind of cool to be in Jerusalem on a Friday night and to see everything shut down. The only thing that doesn't shut down is that the Western Wall, part of the original temple wall, the second temple, that is still able to be accessed, and they are dancing, and they're singing, and they are celebrating the beginning of the Sabbath. It was really cool to see. Well, you know, um, Jesus planned to have the Passover meal early with his disciples because he knew that on Friday night, Good Friday, he would be dead. So he had to celebrate the Passover a day early. And he made arrangements to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. He, he sends uh, uh, Peter and uh, John to make those arrangements. And John gives us a little detail uh, that they were going to do this a day early in the first verse of, of his uh, chapter 13. Now, I'm going to be reading several passages from John 13. I know we tr- typically stand, but because I'm going to be reading several, you can keep your seat. But I am going to ask you to get your Bible out if you have one and, and follow along. Uh, Turn to John 13, and let's look at the first five verses. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, the title of this sermon is The Food. And Pastor Tim gave me the scripture and gave me the the title for the message. And so I read John 13 several times, you know, to prepare for this message. And uh, I was looking for the food. And so verse 1 talks about uh, the Passover feast. I thought, okay, that's good. I'm off to a good start there. And then verse 2, the evening meal was being served. I thought, okay, that's good. Verse 4, he got up from meal. Okay, where's the food? There's very little food in John 13. In fact, and you probably thought that Pastor Josh was going to preach today when you saw the marker board up here, but (laughs) if we diagram or make a diagram of John 13, there are three main things that are happening in John 13. The first one is the feet washing. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. The second thing is he foretells his betrayal, that someone is going to betray him. The third thing is that he predicts Peter's denial. So those are the three things that are happening in John 13, and they're all important things. But again, where is the food? Well, the food is here. It's here. 
and it's here. And John doesn't talk about it. He doesn't mention hardly anything about the food. So I'm thinking, thanks, Tim. This sermon is supposed to be about the food, and John hardly mentions it. Well, from other references, you know, we know that it's clear that Jesus desired to eat the traditional Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover was held to commemorate the exodus out of Egypt and the end of their slavery there. So those advanced preparations that I mentioned earlier, they were being made by Peter and John. And really what that would have meant was that Peter and John would have gone to the temple on Thursday morning. They would have gotten the correct currency, the temple currency. They would have bought a sacrificial lamb. They would have taken that lamb to the priest. The priest would have killed the lamb, would have collected some of the blood into a bowl and poured that blood at the base of the altar table. Another priest would have taken their lamb then and butchered the lamb and would have given the meat to Peter and John. Peter and John then would have taken the meat. They would have taken it somewhere, maybe to a friend's house or whatever. They would have coated it with either olive oil or with wine, and they would have roasted that for three to four hours in preparation for their meal. Lamb was always served as part of the Passover, and that was to really uh, commemorate the lamb's blood that was painted on the lintel and doorposts before the Israelites left Egypt, again, to protect them from the passing over of the angel of death, where the firstborn of uh, every family would, would die if they didn't have that lamb's blood there. Peter of John would have also made arrangements for the other food items for the Passover meal. They would have had unleavened bread, matzah, uh, again, symbolizing the bread that they uh, had in Egypt because they didn't have time. It was a hasty exit, that they, hasty exodus that they had to make. Didn't have time for the bread to rise. Bitter herbs representing the bitterness of slavery. And some of those bitter herbs would be, would be dipped in salt water to symbolize the tears that were shed while they were in slavery in Egypt. There would be something called charoset, which was a mixture of apples and nuts and uh, fruit juice, maybe some wine. It was almost made into a paste, and that was to represent the mortar that they used in building the structures that they were conscripted to do when they were in Egypt. And then there were roasted or boiled eggs. And in sometimes during Jewish history, those eggs have represented new life. At other times, they have represented mourning because eggs would traditionally be served at a a funeral meal after a funeral. But there was another meeting. Everything when boiled in water becomes soft, but not eggs. And so there was some symbolism there that the trials that the Israelites went through actually strengthened them and made them tougher, made them harder. So again, there's lots of symbolism. There was also wine, four cups of wine, in fact, that would be consumed at special times during the meal. And that was to, again, represent the, the blood of the lamb, but also the four promises of God's deliverance that he made to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 6. This meal is filled with symbolism, and it's still celebrated. The Passover Seder is still celebrated by Jews today. It's a very scripted meal. There are certain questions that are asked. There are certain passages of Scripture that are read, and it's a very scripted occurrence. So when Jesus got up from the meal, interrupting it 
That would have gotten the disciples' attention. It would have been a big deal by itself. But what he was about to do to them, for them, would have been completely outrageous. It's interesting to note that Jesus' reasons recorded by John for what he was about to do are are pretty uh, pretty amazing. Look at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. In verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to, to, and was returning to God. And so what did he do? He took off his outer garment, he tied a towel around his waist, and he knew, he had the knowledge that everything was within his grasp. He was all-powerful. He was God. And what did he do? What would you do if you had the knowledge that you were all-powerful, that everything was under your control? What would you do? What did Jesus do? He washed feet. He washed his disciples' feet. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He said, I am not worthy to even unloosen the ties of his sandals. And that was representative of the lowliest thing that John the Baptist could possibly think of doing for Jesus. And he said, I'm not worthy to do it. And Jesus found something that was even lowlier than untying sandals, and that was washing feet. I'm positive that the room grew eerily quiet when Jesus picked up that basin and the pitcher of water. They were really curious to see what Jesus was going to do. And when he started to wash his disciples' feet and they realized the only sound that you could hear in that room were the other disciples shifting uneasily on their their cushions. Well, we were in Israel. We stopped at a gift shop in Bethlehem where we saw lots of olive wood carvings. And this is one that we saw uh, which really represents how the Last Supper would have been consumed. And I wanted to bring this back for you, but it was like $2,000. So, uh, yeah. Plus, it wouldn't have fit in my, my bag. It's, it's, this thing was about this big. So it was pretty enormous. But you can see the table is shaped in a U-shape. The disciples are all reclining. Jesus is pictured there in the center. But when he washed their feet, he would have gone around the outside perimeter and washed their feet one by one while they were lying there on those cushions. You know, uh, no one had said anything while he was doing this up to a point. When Jesus got to Peter, Peter couldn't handle it any longer. If nobody else was going to say something, he was going to say something. Uh, and, and so he did. Let's look at verses 6 uh, through 17. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. 
for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So why did Peter speak up? He was uncomfortable. And he was motivated by his discomfort. He was motivated by his egocentricity. That level of selfishness really won out. And he was simply too embarrassed to accept what Jesus was about to do to him. And then he said something that was going to be refuted immediately. He said, no, you shall never wash my feet. And then he changed his tune right away when Jesus said, well, if I don't, you'll have no part with me. Now, I have to ask you, what kind of a God, what kind of a God would demand that he serve you? What kind of a God would kneel and wash your feet? What kind of a God would bow down before you and do something that only slaves were meant to do and only Gentile slaves? Jewish slaves could never be forced to wash someone's feet. You know, in our video from from Nazareth, Josh pointed out that the condition of feet 2,000 years ago would have made feet washing even more uncomfortable than it is for us today. So what was Jesus doing? What was he trying to communicate? He was all-powerful, as John had pointed out. It says he showed them the full extent of his love. Was he trying to show them that true strength, true power, true glory comes from submission? You know, that teaching went against the grain in Jesus' day, and it's still like a foreign language to us today. Peter would never forget the act of Jesus washing his feet. In his first letter, he writes and he tells his readers to put on the apron of humility. And I'm sure he was referring back to what Jesus did when he knelt and washed his feet. Well, Jesus submitting was not over. Uh, We're going to look at the next passage in John 13, which is verses 18 through 30. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And if you picture back to that carving, you can see how easy it would have been for them to communicate in this way that John would have been leaning against Jesus. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Well, Jesus uh, really sets the stage by telling his uh, disciples that he's going to tell them something so that they'll believe, that that's his purpose in his telling them. And again, Jesus has their betterment, their best interests at heart in mind. You know, he wants them to be able to know this in advance so that it will testify to the fact that he did this not only deliberately but knowingly. Uh, It's obviously a little difficult for him to do. It says that he's troubled in spirit when he's about to tell them. And then he does say it, one of you is going to betray me. We know from other accounts that the disciples were not only at a loss to know which of them he meant, but they all asked, Lord, is it I? The funny thing is that while Judas would be the one, all of them would really betray him. You know, you think about Judas, of course, but Peter was about to deny him. Thomas would doubt his resurrection, uh, you know, after that had taken place. And I think that a verse in Mark, to me, is, has always been the loneliest verse in the Bible. It's Mark 14:50. Jesus is being arrested. And this verse tells us of the response of the disciples. It reads, Then everyone deserted him and fled. And Jesus was left alone. They all would forsake him. They all would betray him. Have we done any better? We have to ask ourselves, when have we been a Judas or a Peter or a Thomas? You know, any one of the disciples, fill the name in. Jesus has done nothing but love us and serve us and give himself for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. And we have deserted him and turned our back on him time after time after time. And he is always there for us when we, as the prodigal son did, come to our senses and make an attempt to return to him. As God promised to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. And certainly that is true of Jesus. You know, it's amazing though. When When you read the conversation around the table in John 13, how unsurpassingly beautiful and lovely it is. These attempts are being made to win Judas back into the fold all through the evening. Consider the seating arrangement, first of all. Judas was seated to Jesus' left. That was the place of honor. And it wouldn't have just happened that Judas sat there. He would have been invited. Jesus would have deliberately had to say, Judas, come and sit next to me. I want to share this meal with you. I want to, I want to talk with you. Come sit here. Jesus washed Judas' feet 
knowing what he knew. He knew that this man was going to betray him. Luke 22.4 tells us that Judas had already had conversations with the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard. You see, the stage was set for him to betray Jesus. And then the word was out there. Jesus had revealed that he knew Judas's plan. And again, it's Peter who can't keep quiet, and he makes signs to John, find out who it is, ask him who it is. And so John, who is sitting on the other side of Jesus, asks the teacher who it is, and, and, and Jesus says, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread. And there it is. That's the only piece of food that's mentioned in this whole passage. That's it. Piece of bread. Yeah, Tim, Tim is back. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. That's the only piece of food. But you know, when, when Jesus offered this to Judas, it wouldn't have been like saying, here, have some chips, you know. It, it was the, the special morsel of food. It was being offered by the host. And he probably took that piece of unleavened bread and, and dipped it in the charoset, you know, that, that mixture of apples and nuts, and, and gave that to Judas as a special sign of affection. And what's the reaction that Judas has? Satan enters into his heart. It's like love's last appeal is spurned. And Satan uses that to enter into his heart. You know, Judas opened his heart to Satan. And guess what? When we open our heart to Satan, guess what happens? <laughs> he comes in. He comes in. A lot of books have been written trying to justify what Judas did and, and trying to say that he had this ulterior motive and he had a good heart and he had a plan to you know, really reveal Jesus as Messiah and to force his hand. But there was nothing good about what Judas did. He opened up his heart to evil. He listened to the call of Satan and responded and acted. And yet, Jesus continued to offer tokens of love and affection to him right up until the very end. And then we read, and it was night. Ominous, isn't it? And then, you know, we always, when that passage, this passage of scripture is read during our, our love feast, we always say this, it is always night when a person goes from Christ to follow his own purposes. It is always night when a person listens to the call of evil rather than the summons of good. It is always night when hate puts out the light of love. It is always darkness and night when a person turns their back on Jesus Christ. Well, we now come to the final passage in John 13, and this is uh, verses 31 through 38. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. If you have your Bibles open, look at the the way those verses are, are laid out. We first note that Jesus Jesus looks at Judas' betrayal as a means of glorifying him. He says, now, now that Judas has left the room to carry out his plan, now the Son of Man is glorified. And in, in those verses, in verses 31 and 32, he uses one form or another of the word glory five times. So he, that's how he saw it. He saw it as his glory. And Jesus also tells his disciples that he is going away and that where he is going, they cannot come. And then Jesus gives his disciples a new command. Love one another, he says. Now, through his entire ministry, he had been demonstrating what it is to love one another. He had been the embodiment of love. He had shown that every day and in everything that he said, everything that he did. But now he's going to tell the disciples and he's going to tell them in the form of a command. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. And just to make sure that they get it, he says, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And then just to make triply certain that they get it, he says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus is thinking, now there, I've lived it, I've done it, I've said it, I've commanded it, I've repeated it. They had to get it this time. And what does Peter do? He hasn't heard a word. He goes back to what Jesus said about leaving them and them not being able to follow. And he says, Lord, where are you going? Now, if I were Jesus as the teacher, urged to shake Peter, you know, he just didn't get it. He didn't hear one word about it. And with patience that we can never hope to understand, Jesus repeats. He repeats what he had said back when he talked about leaving them. He said, you know, you can't follow me. And then Peter, impetuous Peter says, Lord, Why can't I follow you now? You know, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, really, Peter? Will you? I tell you the truth. (laughs) And then he predicts that before the rooster crows, he will disown or deny Jesus three times. When we were walking in the streets of Jerusalem, I'm going to have a hard time even telling you this. When we were walking in the streets of Jerusalem, we heard a rooster crow. And I, you know, who who did I think of first? Peter. But then I thought of myself. Right away. You know? You get the message. Yes, they would all fail miserably. And yet, 
Jesus loved them. And he showed it again and again and again. So where's the food? (laughs) We had a saying when I was principal at Royersford Elementary School. It's all about the food. And we would look for every opportunity that we could to celebrate with a baby shower or a wedding shower or a staff breakfast or dinner before conferences or whatever it was, last day of school, first day of school, middle of the year, the hundredth day of school, didn't matter. You know, we'd look for any opportunity that we could to celebrate with food. But, you know, it really wasn't all about the food. It was about getting together and sharing that time together and fellowshipping with each other. You know, it's really not all about the food as far as Jesus is concerned either. Consider these passages of Scripture. First, Matthew 4, 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. John 4.13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6.35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 4, 32 to 34. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. For Jesus, it was not all about the food. Even though he said to the disciples in Luke, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And Paul got it too. Paul understood it uh, about the agape meal or the Lord's Supper that was shared during the first century churches. He wrote in uh, Corinthians, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it should not result in judgment. They had abused this, this love feast, this agape meal, horribly. People would arrive early just to get there before everybody else, and then they would pig out, and there'd be no food left for anybody else. Some people would go, and they would, they would drink too much. They would get drunk while eating the Lord's Supper. It was a pretty bad scene. You know, read, it, read 1 Corinthians 11. People were just not being considerate. They weren't being loving. The purpose of the meal to some of them was just to eat. Jesus was interested in serving his disciples something other than physical food. The Passover meal was a reason to get together, but he knew the value of gathering together. He knew the value of sharing a common experience. He knew the value of symbolism. In fact, he used two of the symbols from the Passover, the unleavened bread and the wine, and he gave them new meaning. I got to tell you, I'm going to ask John when I get to heaven why in his gospel he doesn't even mention the bread and the cup. I don't get that. That's not even in there, Tim. (laughs) The real food that was served in the upper room that Thursday night was love. You know, if we 
Take the time to, to diagram that. It really spread out through the entire upper room experience. Jesus showed his love to the disciples in a variety of different ways. He, he loved them selfishly, selflessly. Sorry about that. Selflessly. You know, he, he knelt and washed their feet. He showed them that he was willing to, to serve them. He loved them sacrificially. He predicted his death. He said, where I'm going, you cannot come. He was more direct about it other times, too. He wanted the disciples to know that he was willing to die for them and for us. He also loved them knowingly. He knew Judas. He knew Peter. He knew that all of them would forsake him and flee from him. And yet, even with that knowledge, he continued to, to love them, to continue to teach them and be patient with them. And finally, he loved them forgivingly. He really set the stage with them, uh, especially with Peter, so that Peter knew that he knew he was going to deny him. And that set the, the stage for later forgiveness and, and uh, coming back to, to uh, terms and establishing him in a right relationship with Peter once again. So how do we respond to such amazing love? We look to the words for one instance of the hymn writer Isaac Watts who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Chris Tomlin has, has developed those words into a, a more uh, modern version called The Wonderful Cross. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So with that knowledge, the knowledge that Jesus' love demands our soul, our life, our all, there's only one final question. Will we give them? Let us pray.